nationally renowned criminal defense attorney, Neil Rockheim. This is Neil Rockheind, and welcome to another edition, another episode of the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. Um, and before we get to today's really interesting case, which is um, uh, the case of the uh, death by a thousand cuts, I want to um, encourage you to to subscribe, go subscribe to the Killer Cross Examination podcast. It's available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube. Go to our YouTube channel where we've got, uh, I think, over two million unique visits or views. And one of our videos, I think, has been viewed. One of our cross examination videos has been viewed some um, uh, like over a million times. Unique views. And please watch the videos and comment and share with others um, about my unique style of cross-examination, which is, as you know, is called killer cross-examination. And killer cross-examination is about getting to the truth, peeling back the layers, despite what the witness happens to testify to, or despite what the witness is saying, revealing layer by layer, question by question, what the actual truth, the believability of that witness is. And you do it by listening. And you do it sometimes with humor. And sometimes you do it with logic. And it's about revealing the logic of the truth, even when the witness denies it at all costs. And witnesses will do that, even when you're revealing step by step by step the logic of what the truth has to have been. And the witness is denying it. You can see the sweat pouring down the witness's face. You can see the witness getting red in the face and the cheeks, gripping his, his, uh, the armrests of the witness chair, clutching, asking for more water, uh, repeatedly saying, I don't understand, even the simplest questions saying, I don't know, or even saying, can you repeat the question, or using that I don't recall phrase, and you know you've got him. Each question is another cut until the witness is just cut a thousand times and reduced to a puddle of unbelievability right there before the jury's eyes. And it happened in a case that I'm about to tell you now. So the case of the witness who died on the witness stand not literally, but figuratively, by a thousand cuts. And, and this case actually involves two witnesses who um, I was able, through killer cross-examination, to expose. And we're going to talk about one now, and we'll talk about another in the next episode. But let me paint the picture for you, because it's an incredible picture. I want you to picture the case. My client is an immigrant. He's in his 60s. He looks like somebody's grandfather. And for the trial, we had him, um, um, of course, dressed the part. He was in jail and custody, as were all the defendants in the case. But we had him dress the part of the grandfather. We had him bring in a sweater and an argyle sweater and a pair of you know khaki pants, 
so that the the jury wouldn't see him sitting there in a suit and think that somehow he was some you know slick you know um you know character but the case was a very serious case in which my client and uh I believe by the time he went to trial four others were charged with conspiracy with possession of over a kilo of cocaine and conspiracy to deliver over a kilo of cocaine. And they had some special task force that was assigned to investigate the case, had a very fancy name, made up of, of officers and agents from multi, they called it a multi-jurisdictional task force, and it had a very cool, ominous-sounding name, very cool, ominous-sounding uh, very, very, very intimidating title. When the officers said they were from this special unit, it would say, "Ooh," sent shivers through the 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 courtroom. And each of the defendants was in custody. And in this particular jurisdiction, uh, when a person is in custody, they're brought into the courtroom, and they're seated next to their lawyer at counsel table, but. You have to picture that they bring in two to four deputies, uniform deputies per defendant. So you've got five defendants, as I recall, all in custody, which means you've got anywhere from 10 to 20 deputies in the courtroom. The number of deputies in the courtroom, in some cases, would have exceeded, the, in some cases, the number of jurors. I mean, it looked like, you know, the... Deputies were you know, everywhere. One deputy, two deputy, three deputy, four, five deputy, six deputy, seven deputy, more. And then because of the number of people in the courtroom, the number of defendants, we had to bring in additional tables and reorganize the tables. The prosecutor and her colleague, and they were two of the finest prosecutors, two of the toughest prosecutors I've gone up against, and the detectives that were assigned to uh, to work up this case in this special task force had boxes upon boxes upon boxes of evidence and a cart and all, and, and uh, audiovisual equipment all over on their side. On our side, we had two tables that were lined up, one in front of the other. And then at the end of the table was my client, this older guy, and he couldn't speak English. And so next to him was an interpreter, but because we didn't want the interpreter to, uh, to interfere with or interrupt the, the ability of everybody in the courtroom to hear what the witnesses and the lawyers were saying, um, my client wore headphones and she wore headphones so that they could talk back and forth without having to disturb the rest of us but she wore, the interpreter actually wore uh, dark sunglasses for some reason. It, it looked like, um, she looked like uh, one of those characters from a James Bond movie, you know, with the dark sunglasses at, uh, at all hours, even in the, in the bright light of the courtroom. And the two of them together with all the number of deputies and the number of tables, the way it was all lined up, looked in some way kind of like the Nuremberg trial. So, I mean, the, the scene itself was comical if it wasn't so serious. And the lawyers involved, the defense lawyers, are some of my, 
my closest peers and some of my, my mentors, and they are incredible lawyers. And every day, this spectacle we had to go back to repeatedly for a series of weeks because of the, the complexity of the case. And, and normally in a case, you have one jury, but in this case, we had two juries, and the juries would alternate. So one week, one day, the jurors, or one afternoon or morning, excuse me, the one jury, jury number one, for example, would be in the jury box. And then later, that jury on a break would come back and jury number one would be sitting in the gallery and jury number two would be in the jury box. It was like, you know, this incredible, it was like, like, a, like looking at the, the inner workings of a, of, a, of a Swiss watch, just the complexity of it. And part of the facts of the case, so our defense Part of the facts of the case was that my client was some kind of like kingpin, and our defense in the case was that he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, wrongly accused, and that he was an immigrant and an innocent man who had brought his family from a war-torn, formerly communist country that was um, economically devastated, where there was little opportunity for he, his wife, and his children. And he had brought them to this country to make a better life for himself. And that due to circumstances beyond his control, and in some ways his naivete, when an old friend, not old but young, but a, a young man from the old neighborhood who also happened to be here in the United States, announced that he was visiting my client and his family, that my client got wrapped up in and, and was in, the, in that young man's activity. He wasn't actually involved. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The police who were after these other people wrapped him up in the same net. And what I wanted to be able to show the jury was that just like fishermen in the old days would go out and cast this huge net looking for tuna, and they didn't mind if they ended up getting a porpoise or two and including the porpoise or the dolphin in their catch. But in this case, while they were out there fishing for tuna, they happened to absolutely catch a dolphin, a beautiful dolphin. And my client was that dolphin, a man who was living out the American dream, having come here from a foreign country to make a better life for he and his family. And when he couldn't turn his back on a, on a, on a, on a family friend from the old country who was visiting, that when the police happened to be after that young man, they just chose to misconstrue everything, every time, every interaction between my client and that young man for a matter of days. And roped him in too. But how to show that? Well, I did show it because my client was acquitted. And he should have been. And he was the only person that was acquitted in that entire trial. He should have been acquitted. It was the right verdict. It was the truth. But how did we get there? And in part we got there through my use of killer cross-examination on two witnesses, two key witnesses. 
one of the witnesses was an agent that I'm going to talk to you about now. And the agent happened to, to have claimed in his report that he was sitting out doing surveillance and he had followed, waited for my client to leave his apartment and he had followed my client out of his apartment and that he had client got into his car and drove out of the front driveway and turned right onto a major road and that the officer then wrote in his report that he was following my client, that my client then turned into a, a parking lot a hundred yards or so down the way, 200 yards or so down the way and turned around and then went the other way and then pulled into a, a, um, a car wash. And then this officer claims that he handed off the surveillance to another officer that the other officer happened to observe my client participate in a drug transaction in the parking lot near the vacuum pumps of this, this self-wash car wash spot. It sounded pretty damning. Except it was filled, at least in one of the first things that I heard this witness talk about in his police report, which I exposed on cross-examination, was my client leaving the apartment building, turning right onto that road, and then turning into this parking lot, another area, and then turning around and doing a U-turn. He called that some counter-surveillance move. He literally wrote that in his report and then testified to it on direct examination with the prosecutor eliciting questions, saying that he had engaged, called it counter-surveillance. And he said it's consistent with major traffickers and criminals. And he said it's a move that's common, that they'll, they'll drive, a, they'll turn the wrong way, and then they'll do a U-turn in an effort to see if they're being surveilled. And what I revealed on killer cross-exam, through use of killer cross-examination, what I revealed on cross-examination was that that was just an utter, bald assumption based on nothing but speculation, conjecture, and an assumption that my client was guilty. People turn right out of parking lots, don't they? Yes, and they drive down a particular road. Yes, don't they? And sometimes, officer, isn't it true that people realize they, can, they may intend to go to a gas station? Yes, or maybe they're going to get a pack of cigarettes. Yes, they're going to go get a beverage or a cup of coffee from a, a local spot. A coffee shop ahead, yes. And you would agree that a person could realize that they're late in time or that they are behind or that they could get a phone call and say they don't have time to get coffee or they don't have time to get cigarettes. Or they could just decide for themselves, they could change their mind, right? Yes. And if you happen to have been going in one direction and you change your mind for whatever reason and decide that the direction you were heading the thing you're going to do, you no longer need to do, or you no longer are going to do, you would then make a decision to turn, yes, turn around, yes, and go the opposite direction, correct? Yes. That's exactly what my client did, isn't it? Yes. There's nothing on his car or on his, in, in his taillights that said that this was a counter-surveillance move, correct? Right. There was nothing that says that, like, this was somehow in, a, there's nothing in, in 
on the road that says that if a person goes right and then happens to change their mind and go the other way, that that's some counter surveillance move. Is there? No, nothing about the way the car is maneuvered or shimmies or moves that would say this is a quote counter surveillance move. Is there? No, that was just your interpretation. Yeah. That's just your assumption. Isn't that true? Yes. And he hemmed and hawed and didn't want to say it was consistent with and used terminology like it was consistent with, but I just stuck with it. That was just your interpretation, right, officer? Well, based upon my training experience, that's what I saw. That was just your interpretation, wasn't it? Well, based on my training experience, I said, officer. And then I lowered my voice, and I spoke very slowly. I said, that was just your interpretation. Isn't that true? And he said, yes. And then I went further. I said, you would agree that anybody has the right to change their mind and the direction that they're traveling, right, officer? Yes. I have the right to do that, don't I? Yes. Doesn't the judge have the right to do that? Yes. Don't you have the right to do that? Yes. Isn't it true, officer, that you yourself have done that? Of course, he was confronted with the logic of it. Had he said no, that he'd never turned one direction and decided to turn around the other way, he had to concede, yes, he'd done it. I said, well, you weren't engaged in counter-surveillance then, were you? No. I had revealed through the logic of it that he had made an assumption, he had done the very same thing, and when he did it, it was perfectly innocent. But when my client did it, it was somehow a sign of guilt. Because logically his story didn't make any sense, and then I drove the another. Then I, I lashed again with a, a, another series of questions that cut him even further on the witness stand. Officer, you can't even tell us how many cars were on the road that day. I don't know, and you can't even tell us whether any other vehicles before. Before my client turned right and turned around, or after he turned right and turned around, had done the very same thing, can you? No, I can't. And isn't it true, the reason why you interpret my client's maneuver that way, but give yourself a pass, is because you've already assumed that my client was up to no good. Oh, I wasn't making any assumptions at that point. That's just my training experience. But the truth had been revealed. The jury knew that he was just making assumptions. He was just saying whatever he had to say. It made absolutely no sense. Counter-surveillance move. It was just some guy turning around the other way. But it got better. I could have probably sat down at that point and had exposed that there was reason to doubt this witness's testimony. But he had gone further. Remember, he had actually testified. He had written his report, excuse me, that my client, he had followed my client again after this quote-unquote counter-surveillance move that we exposed to be BS, and that he had followed him uh, from a distance and observed that my client had turned into a... uh, uh, car wash, and that when he turned into the car wash, and he said, he 
that my client had turned left into this car wash. And this, this car wash is one of those ones that has like the self-washing bays and the self-vacuum um, stalls on the side with the big vacuum machines and the big hoses that hang overhead. He said that my client pulled in and then another officer had taken up the eye, is what they called it, the fancy name for being the lead surveillance officer, the eye. But, and from there, he monitored the radio and he had heard on the radio that my client had engaged in a narcotics transaction. During, there were multiple hearings in the case and during one of the very first hearings, this witness had been asked by the officer, by the prosecutor, who was very experienced, to describe the surveillance that, that he was conducting of my client. And he's following him, and he says he turns left into this car wash. And one of the keys to killer cross-examination is you have to listen, and you have to be able to visualize. takes time, but you have to be able to visualize what's happening as the witness is testifying. And not just visualize what the witness is saying, but visualize the truth of it. Is there a different truth? Is there a different picture, image that is more logical, that's more truthful? And as this witness is testifying, he testifies that my client turns left into this self-car wash lot. And then the prosecutor says, can you describe it? And the guy describes it. Only the description of it, because I had done my research and I had done my investigation. I had photographs galore of this car wash. The description of the car wash that he testified to didn't, match the car wash that my client actually pulled into. Can you believe that? I'm sitting there and I have a picture of the car wash in my hand that my client pulled into. And the prosecutor says, describe the car wash. And then this witness says, it was a long driveway that you had to, and that was, uh, the property was very thin and that the narrow and it ran perpendicular to the road And it was a long driveway that was on the right of all of the bays, and you had to turn left to get into the the bays to wash your car. And then beyond that were all of these, or excuse me, in front of each of the bays was the the vacuum um, um, stalls with the long, big vacuum machines, big blue vacuum machines and the big blue tubes and the vacuum tubes. And I'm looking at a photograph of the, the car wash that my client had actually turned into. And it didn't match. And I'm salivating. And I'm thinking, how could he get this wrong? The only way he could get it wrong is if he didn't actually see my client pull into the car wash. So how did we get to this point? Well, we take a break in the proceedings and then um, we come back later, and I have a transcript from the first hearing where the, pros- where the witness testified and described it incorrectly. And then the prosecutor asked a question, and she said, between the, the two court dates, agent, did you have a chance to, to go out and, and 
the Jew, um, excuse me, she asked whether or not he, she asked a question that contained a false fact. And what she said was, during the last hearing, you had testified that you went to the name, to the car wash. And she named the car wash in her question. The witness said yes. And I'm flipping through the transcript looking, and I can see that the witness had never actually testified to the name of the car wash. That was the name of it. He had described it wrong before, and he got the name right, only the prosecutor had never asked him, and he had never testified to the name in the first proceeding. And so I used my technique of killer cross-examination to expose what I knew to be the truth. And what had happened was, as my questions revealed, I put to him questions that he came to court, the prosecutor asked him to describe the car wash, he described the car wash this way, she then went and there was a break, and he had described the car wash this particular way, and he came prosecutor asked him during the, the break in the proceedings to go out and to do some more surveillance to make sure he got it right, and that he had gone out and done some surveillance, and that he then you know, got the name of the car wash and then came back and then continued to testify. And what I did was put together that he had described it wrong the first time, and my questions essentially put to him that he described it wrong, that the prosecutor could tell that he had described it wrong, that she then encouraged him to go out and to take a look at it. He then went and took a look at it. He, and then she came back and she had asked him a false fact or asked a question that contained a false fact, which was that previously you had testified to the name of the car wash. And I showed him the transcript and I said that wasn't true. And he had to concede that, that that's correct. He hadn't actually previously testified to the name of the car wash. And then I put to him that the prosecutor told you the name of the car wash, that the prosecutor told you the name of the car wash, and that you then went out and you described, you saw the name of the car wash. And you were doing all that to try to clean up your testimony because you had described the car wash incorrectly. And I said, and here you described the car wash as XYZ with a long driveway and the bays on the left. And I said, except that's this car wash. And I had a picture of a car wash from across the street. I said, look at this car wash, car wash number two. It's got a long driveway, it's got bays, and it's got the vacuum bays are right in front of the wash bays. That's the one you described uh, on direct examination during your testimony, isn't it? He says, no. Well, doesn't it match the description? He says, yes. I said, and then, I said, the one that my client actually went into is this one across the street. And I described the difference. It was a smaller property and it had, it was not perpendicular. It was really parallel to the, to the main road. And it had the bays in front and it had the, the, the blue, you know, the hoses and the vacuums on the side. I said, and I put them up on a, on a computer on a, on a video screen to show that they did not match. And what really happened officer, isn't it true is that you testified 
that you described that you'd made these observations. You'd observed my client pull into a car wash. You described the car wash wrong on direct examination. There was a break in the action, a break in the testimony, a break in the hearings. The prosecutor told you that you had described it wrong. She told you to go out and look at it. You went out and looked at it. You realized you'd made a mistake. You came back, and then she included a false fact in your testimony, or her questioning the second time around, where she had mentioned the name, and that wasn't true, and that's all because she was encouraging you to try to clean up your testimony. Isn't that true? And, of course, he's denying it, but the truth was right out in front of him. It was plain as day. Now, he denied all of that, but the logic of it was impeccable. I had actively listened, and by using my knowledge, wit, and the logic of it, I was able to reveal, even though he denied it each and every time, that he hadn't seen a thing, because the final question was, officer, isn't it true that you didn't see my client pull into any car wash. You were just repeating what you heard over the police radio. He denied it, but the truth was right there. He was cut. He was shriveled. It was like he, it was like the wicked witch of the West, like they just thrown water on him. He melted right there on the witness stand. If the man could have crawled underneath the witness chair, he would have. He was toast, not toast. He was that kind of toast when you leave it in the toaster too long and it starts to smoke and you pull it out and it's so browned and toasted that it's inedible. He was toasted, triple toasted. He'd been cut, a thousand cuts. And he didn't admit that he, was, that he hadn't seen anything. He didn't admit that he hadn't witnessed anything. But by taking the pieces and putting them together, we were able to expose that he wasn't being truthful, that he wasn't believable to the jury. How? The assumption of this counter-surveillance move, that was exposed that. And, and, and the logic of the fact that just a normal everyday move, and because he was assuming my client was some nefarious character, he had ascribed to him the worst possible interpretation. No, it's not possible. Well, maybe he was just turning around. Maybe he was just got, got the, the, the direction wrong. Maybe he was going to go get a cup of coffee. You don't know. No. But you just assume the worst. Didn't matter what his answers were. And then, and then, by taking these facts and putting them together, that he was following my client. There was, in fact, a police radio. Of course, there was police radio and communications. But had he actually seen my client turn left into the a, a self car wash? He would have been able to describe the self car wash accurately. He would have described another car wash that was across the street. And they looked different. A small property 
where the bays actually face the, the road and the vacuum area is on the side of the building is much different than a, a, a property which is long and narrow where the bays don't face the road And one has to turn, when you drive in this lawn, you have to turn left into these bays, and the vacuum machines are in front. Now, not only did he get the description of it wrong, but how could the prosecutor say that during the first hearing he had said the name of it when he hadn't? And so the truth of it was revealed. He hadn't seen anything. And his testimony on direct examination raised a a red flag for the prosecutor because he described it wrong. So I put to him that what must have happened is he must have had a conversation with her during the break. And she encouraged him to go double-check. And that he went out and double-checked. And then she's the one that introduced the name into the proceeding the second time around. And how could they get that wrong? And I showed him his transcript and I said, her question contained a false fact. She asked you the question, and last time you were here, you testified that the name of the car wash is X, Y, and Z. And you said yes. I said, here, look at your transcript from the first proceeding. Take as much time as you want. Look anywhere you want. You can look at page one through whatever. It doesn't matter. I would encourage you to focus on this question and answer, but you look anywhere you want. You find for me the spot where you testified during the first hearing the name of the car wash. And, of course, you couldn't find it because it wasn't there. And then I put to him what really happened. From my perspective, what I believe logically happened, that you testified, you described during the first hearing this car wash, and look at the photographs. You described it incorrectly. Here's photograph one. Here's photograph two. He could deny it all he wants. And then when and the jury's seeing the photographs, and then during the break, the prosecutor said, do you need to, she encouraged you to go... She, you know, check it out. Go do some surveillance. She said to you that there's something wrong with what you're saying. You're not describing it correctly. And then, and it's going to, it's a problem for you. And then you came back and then she included this question with the false fact. And that's because, isn't it true, officer, you didn't actually see my client pull into any car wash. And it was evident. It was obvious. Did he ever admit it? No, but he didn't have to. The logic of it was so obvious. And I want you to imagine a witness on the stand that despite the fact that that the truth has been put to him, he just says, no, no, no. It would be like, isn't it true that today is a day of the week? No, it isn't it true that the sun rose in the east? No, it isn't it true that the sun is uh, overhead at noon? No, it isn't it true that the sun was setting in the west? No. 
Isn't it true you're just saying all that because if you were to admit the opposite, you would be revealing that you were just not telling the truth earlier? It was something like that. It had that level of, it had that, that feeling. And as a cross-examiner, as a lawyer, when you're able to figure out the, that logically something else must have happened other than what the witness is testifying to, it is a beautiful thing because the jury, the jury can sense it. The jury knows the logic of it. The jury can compare what you're saying makes logical sense, even though the witness is denying it. And when they deny it, even though they say, or in this case, he said no, when you compare that to what was logical and what made more sense, it exposed him as being unreliable. That killer cross-examination reduced that witness into a puddle of mush. Like I said, the Wicked Witch of the East from the Wizard of Oz. When you throw water on her, she's melting, melting, and melted right before us. He hadn't seen anything. And he was just trying to fill in the pieces. He was trying to use logic when he should have been testifying to facts, is what I explained to the jury. And that killer cross-examination, that's what that's all about. It's about using your wits and your senses and your hearing and your your imagination, and it's about picturing what really must have taken place and knowing that what the witness is saying just doesn't match what must be logically true. And that's what happened with that witness. That's what killer cross-examination is all about. That's what I hope to help you be able to learn to do in your professional life and even in your personal life. I want you to be able to use these tools to improve your life, your interactions with others, your business activities, your, your ability to listen to what other people tell you, to know when someone is giving you a good deal or a bad deal to know when someone is telling you the truth or not, even when they won't admit that they're selling you a, a, a jalopy. I want you to be able to use your logic to question what that person is telling you and expose it to be unreliable, as I did with this witness. This witness, this one witness, seemed on that day with each question and the revelation of a new fact to be exposed, to be cut, one cut after another, slash, slash, cut, 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 until a thousand cuts had left the witness. In essence, unreliable before the jury. There's more to this trial. There's another witness in this very same trial who 
was exposed even more, and it's one of the greatest cross-examinations I've ever had the privilege to take part in, to conduct, with some of my mentors, and I told you some incredible lawyers watching on. And this witness kept one question, one photograph, one picture after another, just being cut down one inch by one inch. And we're going to talk about that killer cross-examination in our next episode. This is Neil Rockine with uh, the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. Look, man, subscribe. Go to Apple and subscribe. Go to Spotify and subscribe. Go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. Be one of the millions of people that participate in watching our, the YouTube videos on our YouTube channel. Subscribe so that you can get the next update of Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. This is Neil Rockhead.